Hi. Uh, hi. 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 To all that are watching, wherever you're watching from. Uh, we have referred to this room as the, the live studio audience, um, so if you could keep your laughing at a minimum, that shouldn't be a problem uh, with my jokes. <laughs> Exhibit A. Um, but uh, it, is, it is a strange time uh, to be with you. It is a delightful time to be with you. I have longed even for this version of church to happen for many months. Um, there's many of you watching at home, uh, Midtown Home Church, uh, welcome, uh, and it is, it is uh, not unlike the Lord to scatter his people. He has done that many times throughout church history. He has done that many times throughout the creation of his people. But the Lord always scatters that he might gather. The Lord always scatters with the intention of gathering more sheep, gathering more children that aren't currently in the flock. And so we trust, even as he is scattering in this season, that he is in some mysterious way also gathering in this season. And so in this season, uh, we're beginning our live services, we're beginning our Midtown Home Church sermon series with a sermon series called The Priesthood of the Believer. And that phraseology may be weird to you, the priesthood of the believer, but it was from our call to worship. That's, that's in part where we get that uh, term from, the priesthood of the believer comes from 1 Peter, that the Lord says to his people in 1 Peter that I have made you a royal priesthood. All of the church, I have made you a royal priesthood, but Peter didn't invent that idea. Peter stole that idea from Moses in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai. The Lord says his intention for his people is that he would make them a kingdom of priests. All of his people, not just this upper echelon of super spiritual people that get to be priests, but that he would make all of his people a kingdom of priests. And in the New Testament, like we said, that we are a royal priesthood. So from Old Testament to New Testament, this thread is pulled from beginning to end, that God's people are intended to be priests to the world. So what does it mean? And why would we look at that um, terminology? Why would we look at that idea now? Well, as we said, in a season where the church is scattered, in a season where people feel unsettled, in a season where people aren't really sure which way is up, and especially in a season where people are wondering, what are we supposed to be doing the question we could be asking and the question that hopefully is being answered through this season is, what is the call of God to his people regardless of what's going on in the world? Or maybe, what is the call and what is the purpose and what is the intention of God for his people specifically because of what is going on in the world? Like maybe if we could get a, a fresh uh, revisit, a, a refocusing on the mission that God has for his people, we would understand what we're supposed to be doing in this time when no one seems to know what they're doing. When work is, is, is disheveled and when people are longing for community and longing to connect and not really sure how long this is going to last and how long do we have to wait this out and our loved one's going to die and how careful do I have to be and when are schools going to go back and when is it going to go back to normal, whatever that is, and all the questions that we could get lost in asking one of the things the Bible invites us into is those questions may have answers, but a, a better question is, what is the Lord calling us to as a people in this season, regardless of what's going on in the world? And we hope that our understanding of what it means that God's people are priests, priests to the world, the priesthood of the believer, would help us answer that question. And so first, <clears throat> what was a priest? Many of us, uh, depending on the faith tradition you were raised in or raised around, may have baggage with that word that priests are these 
weird people that wear robes and I'm scared of them, and, or maybe priests seem boring and, and lifeless, or maybe you have a, 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 a view of, of the priesthood that says, well, that's for the super spiritual, and that's for people who are really serious about their faith. They become priests, but what about me? I would hope that as we unpack this biblical understanding, as we add color to this biblical idea over the next several weeks, that it would help us understand that the biblical idea of the priest or the believer is a far better understanding than the one we currently have. And so here's a helpful working definition of a priest. Here's, a, here's what we're going to kind of be coming back to each week. This is, this is kind of the baseline, and this isn't everything that a priest is, but it certainly covers all the major bases from a biblical perspective. A priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and invites others into that presence. A priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and invites others into that presence. And so the story of God's people being priests, again, is, is from Old Testament to New Testament, actually begins where we're going to begin today in an in a, in a ironic position. Uh, it starts in the beginning. The idea of God's people being priests actually starts on the opening pages of the Bible. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, if you're at home, it, it should be on the screen. I believe it'll be on the screen here too. I'm going to read uh, one passage from Genesis 1 uh, that will be on the screen, and then I'm going to read a couple other ancillary passages from Genesis 2 and 3 to give us a full understanding. So this is Genesis chapter 1. This is the creation of the world. This is, this is the beginning of all things. This is the beginning of time and history. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, says this. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 15 should be on the same page. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And then skipping down to verse 25 in chapter 2, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then last, Genesis chapter 3, the first part of verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, is the word of the Lord. So if you ask any Jewish or Old Testament scholar about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of the world, every ancient or modern scholar that understands Hebrew poetry, that understands Hebrew narrative, that understands the way that ancient Hebrew was written and is to be understood, everybody is in agreement that this is a majestic piece of literary art. This is a, this is a poetic treasure chest, and it pops off the page, and it's, it's, it takes a lot of work to truly dissect all that's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and I made the joke this week, it's not a joke, it's serious, that I, I, I really believe you could preach any biblical topic from Genesis 1 through 3. It's all there. The seeds of everything we believe about the Bible and about God's story and about God's people is in Genesis 1 through 3. There is so much going on. 
this poetic treasure chest that, that so much gold could be pulled from, and this creation that God has just created, this thing being created, the world and the cosmos and every living thing and the mountains and the skies and the seas, it's described in a superlative way. There's this refrain all through Genesis 1, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. That's what he says at the end. There are magnificent rivers splitting off, we're told, in chapter 2, and those magnificent rivers split off into other rivers. And in fact, if you kind of study the geography of it, one of the rivers kind of goes in a circle and just kind of encapsulates and, and fertilizes the soil all throughout the created order. And there's gold popping up, and the land is fertile, and there's animals and humanity living in harmony, and the sun is dancing in the sky by day, and the moon and the stars are singing at night, and the mountains are thundering, and the trees are flourishing. This is paradise. That's actually what that biblical word means, garden. It actually means paradise. There's another word for garden that we would kind of understand as the normal garden. This is paradise. And in the middle of this garden, at the epicenter of this garden, this land known as Eden, this paradise, this garden exists. And the literal translation of the Garden of Eden is this, a paradise of delight. The Garden of Eden was the garden of delight. And even the naming of the garden is meant to, to spark our imaginations that this is the place where God is delighting in all that He has made. This is the place where God is reveling in what He has made. This is the place where God is enjoying an extravagance of paradise where all the senses are being maximized. All the ways that you can ever imagine enjoying something with all of your senses, God was doing it in the Garden of Delight. This is the image that came to mind this week, imagine if a king with unlimited resources threw a party and not one time did he say, that's too much. It's an Enneagram 7's dream that he could just not say no to anything, <laughs> that more is always better. This is God dancing. This is God enjoying. This is God creating. This is God reveling with no limits. And we understand moments of this experience we understand this emotion just a little bit this this is the emotion you get when you listen to your favorite music this is the emotion you get when you are at your favorite concert or eating your favorite food at your favorite restaurant this is the emotion we get when we're water skiing or the emotion we get when we're with old friends this is like nostalgia colliding with excitement and anticipation with no limits that all of the joy that you can imagine, like thinking back on the greatest seasons of your life or the greatest days in your life, your wedding day or summer camp or high school graduation or whatever it was, that you just go, man, if I could just go back to that, all the nostalgia of that, but experiencing all that in real time for what's happening in front of you. And then, like a painter or a songwriter or a creator of anything, God finished what he had made. See, you, we understand this too, like with the, the sculpture of Michelangelo, that, that there was a moment that happened where it was done, where, where there was a moment that it, it was finished, where there was a moment where everything about it was perfect and there was nothing more that needed to be added to it. It wasn't that God got tired, it was that he said, this is very good. And now I'm enjoying this with my creation and with my image bearers, Adam and Eve, The garden is where God's presence was dwelling in a very special way. That's what we read from Genesis chapter 3, that he was walking in the cool of the day with his creation in the garden. The garden is where heaven and earth were colliding. The garden is where heaven and earth were overlaying one another. 
And the Garden of Eden is where the joy of the presence of God was experienced and enjoyed by all who dwelt in it. And the garden is the way that things were intended to be. When God made the garden and said it was very good, he's putting a stamp on it and saying, this is how I want my creation to be. I want to enjoy this with them. I want this to be a place, the paradise of delight, and I want to share this with them. And so now with just this this brief picture of the Garden of Eden, what if I told you that everything I just said, everything I just said about the Garden of Eden was also true about the temple of the Lord? That just like the garden, the temple is where, was where God's presence dwelt in a very special way. The temple was where heaven and earth collided. The temple was where the joy of the presence of the Lord was experienced and enjoyed. In fact, when the, when the, the book of Genesis was written, it was written by Moses for the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. They're, just, they're described, they're, they're getting this description of Genesis chapter 1 and they're hearing it. And then right after that, they're told about the tabernacle, which would become the temple. When any Israelite read the creation account and then any Israelite experienced the tabernacle or the temple, they would see all the parallels. When they heard Moses describe Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they would go, that sounds a whole lot like the temple. They would have gotten all the parallels. In fact, on a deeper level, Almost every single image, almost every single picture, almost every single thing that went inside the temple that they built was an allegory back to Eden. All the symbols, all the decor, all the materials they were using in the temple of the Lord was meant to echo back to Eden. Every Israelite would have known when they heard about the created order, when they heard about the Garden of Eden, when they heard about Genesis 1-3, through they would have thought, that sounds a whole lot like our temple. Plainly put, the biblical understanding is that God's first temple was the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's first temple. Okay, we need to understand that for point one. Because since the Garden was the first temple, then Adam and Eve were the first priests. Priests in the Garden. In light of the master gardener who had just made this garden of delight and enjoying all of his creation, God then enlists the pinnacle members of his creation, mankind and womankind, humanity, to be in the garden with him on this project of delight spreading, on this project of joy casting, on this project of enchantment and pleasure sharing. In fact, what we read in Genesis chapter 2, the description of Adam and Eve's job in the garden, they were told to cultivate it and keep it to work it and to take care of it. Two words, those same exact two Hebrew words, to cultivate and to keep the garden, are the exact same two words used of the priest in the temple for their job at the temple, to cultivate and keep the temple. It's the same job description. Adam and Eve were given the same exact job description in the garden that priests were given in the temple. The parallels are overwhelming. So Adam and Eve, as these first priests, are made in God's image. And that's very important for us to understand. That's what we read from Genesis 1. And as you read Genesis 1, if you were to spend 30 minutes reading it and rereading it and rereading it and trying to see what just kind of sticks out at you, the literary masterpiece that it is is meant to make the passage that we read, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, 
It's literally meant to point your eyes to it. It's meant to pop up off the page at you. It sticks out in Genesis 1 intentionally. It's meant to show the reader that the pinnacle moment of, of the Genesis 1 creation story is man and woman being made in God's image. That nothing else in all of creation is said to be made in God's image. And so to be made in God's image means a lot of things. But one of the things that it means is that what he had just made, the creation he had just made, and then that nothing else that he had just made was made in his image except man and woman, is that they were meant to represent him in his creation. He is the invisible God, and so he makes man and woman to be the visible of the invisible. Represent me to the world Be my representative on earth. And what exactly, now that we have just a little picture of the story of the paradise of the Garden of Delight that Adam and Eve were to cultivate and to keep, and they are his image bearers. They are to represent the God that just made all of this. What were they to show the world about the one that made them? What were they to take to the world? Well, remember, we're in the first temple. Remember, these are priests in the first temple. And what do priests do? Someone who has access to God's special presence and invites others into that presence. Now let me add a little color to that as we merge that with our understanding of the gardener in his garden of delight. He puts his image bearers in the story and he tells them to be fruitful and to to multiply. He tells them to take care of it and to keep it and to take dominion and to spread this joy. And so beaming off the pages of Genesis 1 that these first priests, these first humans, is that the role of humanity was to share the joy and the delight of the gardener. They were in his presence. They were experiencing his delight. They were to cultivate and keep all that God had made in his garden of delight, and they were to take that to the world as his representatives. This is not just the call of Adam and Eve. This is the original call of everyone who has ever come from Adam and Eve. This is the call of all who bear the image of God. Represent God's joy and delight and paradise spreading to the world. Because you have access to his special presence, invite others, bring as many people as you can into that presence. This is the way humanity was made. Now, zoom in with me here for just a minute. We're going we're to camp here on, on one little thing. I, I, I just tried to cover a whole bunch in about... I don't know how many minutes because I wasn't looking, but a lot of minutes, or a few minutes. We're going we're gonna to zoom in on one piece of this. With all of this beauty and with all of this delight, with all of this wonder, please hear with me again the way that Genesis chapter 2 closes the narrative on the Garden of Delight. This is, this is like the, the most lush flower in the entire garden. This is the finishing touch that the Genesis 2 painter puts on the canvas. He he wraps it all up by telling the reader this about the experience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Delight. He says, Adam and Eve were in the garden with their maker, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. Can you even imagine such a place? Can you even begin to fantasize about the reality where you would be so full of wonder, so full of laughter, so full of delight, so not thinking about yourself all the time, so free and so liberated that you and I could be naked and feel no shame? 
it's almost unspeakable because we breathe in shame like we breathe in oxygen. In fact, shame is like this soil underneath. It's like underneath the topsoil that we can never quite get to in our lives. Shame lives in the shadows of our lives where we can almost never even pinpoint it or figure out exactly where it is, and it's part of how shame works. You and I are so used to breathing in shame. It's so hardwired into our DNA, and it's part of shame's sinister scheming is that it doesn't want to be detected. But we breathe it in all the time. We don't almost know how to live without it. We're so used to living with it. Shame certainly has definitions. Brene Brown has great ones. Dan Allender has great ones. Kurt Thompson has great ones. These are all masters of the topic of shame. I'm not disagreeing with any of them. They're definitions of shame. But it's so hard to actually figure out exactly what it is. And here's what I know, that all of us know what shame feels like way before we can tell you exactly what it feels like. But we all know the general sense of, I just, I don't feel like I'm enough I don't feel like I have what it takes. I don't feel like anybody wants to love me. I don't feel like I'm lovable. I don't feel like I actually want to be known. I don't feel like anybody knows me. I don't really want to have anyone see my face, so to speak. And I know this, that shame wants to write a story for us. And here's how it does it. Shame uses our life and the details about our current life and our past life And it tells us a story about our future life. It literally uses the details and the experiences that are true about you. And it uses them to tell you a story about who you are and who you will be. And the story that it tells us is brutal. It tells us that we're all alone. And it tells us we're all alone because who would ever want to be with someone like us? It accuses us and tells us that we're condemned, and then it uses evidence from our own story as proof as to why we should be condemned. And it's really hard to argue with proof that you lived through. You can't really argue with the proof that shame uses because you were there, and you know that shame isn't lying. It tells us we're not enough, and then it tells us what we would need if we're ever going to be enough, and then makes us feel like, well, then I'll definitely never be enough if that's what I need in order to be enough. Shame is this shadow mover that infiltrates almost every experience of our day. It infiltrates almost every emotion of our day. Let me just give you one for example. If you're afraid, You might be afraid of something. You might be afraid of something happening to you. You might be afraid of something happening to those you love. You might be afraid of what's coming or afraid of the unknown. And all that may be very natural. But here's where shame comes in. Shame comes in and tells you, hey, that thing you're afraid of, if that thing happens, you're not going to have what you need to face that thing. And so what you're afraid of then becomes this thing that you begin to experience shame alongside of. So I'm afraid of this thing, but now I'm also feeling this shame if my fear came true. So now I'm not just battling fear, I'm battling shame at the same time. But you would never know it because shame is, again, underneath the topsoil, growing in you this fruit of fear. I could go down the list on all these emotions. But what I would hope we would see, what we would begin to, to understand is if we could just use our redeemed imaginations for just a moment. And just imagine living in a creation, living in a garden, living in the presence of the Lord where you would be so free, so enjoyed, so known, and so loved that you could be totally naked and feel no shame. I want you to literally try to imagine that. 
the freedom of that place, the delight of the Garden of Eden. See, because trying to understand this with Adam and Eve as God's image bearers in the Garden of Delight is the role of the first priests. This is what it means to be a priest. This is the intention of God's humanity. This is the original mandate for God's creation and for His image bearers. That priests were to dwell with God in a special way because they had access in a special way to his presence and then invite others. Be fruitful and multiply. Cultivate and keep this relationship and then invite as many people as you can into that. How does the prospect of being a priest, being a gardener in that place sound? Don't you want to invite other people into that? Don't you want to bring people that you love and that you care about into that place, into that garden of delight? Well, as lovely as that may sound, it didn't last. Because as soon as we're told that they were naked and felt no shame, literally, the very end of chapter 2, they were naked and felt no shame, that that final touch on the canvas of delight, about four verses later, we're told that they rejected that delight. They rejected the presence of the Lord. They failed to cultivate and keep the garden. And because of this failure, God was just in casting them out of the garden. And do you know the very first thing they experience in the Garden of Delight after they reject God's presence? They experience shame. The Bible says they realize they were naked and they try to cover it up with fig leaves. Nothing has changed about their physical appearance. All that's happened is something inside of them, and now they realize they're naked, and if I'm naked, no one could love me. I must cover up my nakedness. That's why the Lord comes and asks that question to them. He says, who told you you were naked? And the answer is, they did. They were the ones telling themselves, I don't belong here. I've, I've, got, I've got to cover myself up. Their nakedness was no longer freeing. Their nakedness was exposing. And here's what's tricky. This is so tricky, and part of what makes shame so deadly is that were they guilty, and did they deserve to be cast out of the garden? Yes. They had violated their very DNA, and they had vandalized the garden that they were created to cultivate and to keep, but there is a stark difference between guilt and shame. And this is what makes shame so much more palpable for us that when the accusing voice uses instances from our very history as proof against us, we have a very tough time distinguishing between the guilt and the shame of that. Because a lot of our history, we're guilty. But then shame wants to take that history and bring us into a courtroom and not only tell us we're guilty, but tell us we're despised and tell us we're worthless and tell us we have no business being loved by anybody. Do you know that there is a direct line in your brain from the place where you experience and feel shame to your memory? And it works in nanoseconds. That the moment you and I start feeling shame, it's already pulling memories up to confirm how you're feeling. And sometimes they're from the short, uh, recent past. Sometimes there's stuff that you've suppressed for years. Sometimes there's stuff that you can't believe you ever did. And here's what is happening. Shame knows you're feeling that way, and it immediately draws from your memory and says, see, told you so. It's using things that we have actually done. 
It's using things we have actually said. It's using things we have actually fantasized about. Not just to tell us that we're guilty, but to convince us that we should be condemned, despised, rejected, and unloved. So if you're feeling shame, your memory is already working to prove why you should feel that shame. And so covered in shame, these first priests are cast out of the first temple. The image-bearing gardeners are cast out from the presence of the master gardener. And the representative head of all humanity, Adam, failed in his task as a priest. And now, all who would ever come from Adam and his line would be born into a reality where shame is the undercurrent and where being cast out is our natural state. So do you come from Adam and Eve? Yes, you do. I'll tell you the answer. Yes, you do. If you don't, we need to talk. If you come from Adam and Eve, then I know what your natural state is like. It's one of being downtrodden. It's one of comparison. It's one of not being sure where you belong. It's one of trying to cover up with fig leaves that don't do the job. It's one of longing to be brought back into the presence of the Lord, the garden of delight, but having no idea how that could ever or possibly happen. That's what I know your life is like. And you may not be aware of it, but shame is very aware of it. And it is infiltrating almost every moment of your day. That feeling, that sense, is why your life feels the way that it does. But I'm not sure if you know this, we're only on page three of the Bible. We got a long way to go. And the story isn't over. That yes, the first Adam, the original priest, failed at his task and was cast out. But thousands of years later, a new Adam would come. In fact, that's one of the primary ways that the New Testament describes Jesus. It calls him the new Adam, the second Adam, the new representative of a new people and the creator of a new humanity. He came to launch a new humanity and remake people in his image. So in John chapter 20, in the New Testament, Jesus has been betrayed, he's been crucified, he's buried, he's He's resurrected. This is, this is post-resurrected Jesus in John chapter 20. And a lot has happened between Genesis 3 and John chapter 20. And we don't have time to go through everything. But a lot's happened. Like thousands of years and pages. But this, this moment happens post-resurrection. In fact, it's the first thing to happen post-resurrection. And if you, if you read kind of the chronology of all the resurrection accounts, this is the very first encounter that a resurrected Jesus has with anybody. Some women go to the tomb to anoint his body. It was a, it was a Hebrew, it was a Jewish burial rite and, and tradition. They were going to anoint his body with oil and spices and, and kind of um, honor the dead. But they get to the tomb and it's empty and the women are sad. And Mary, one of his dear friends, is, is devastated. They've stolen his body. She has no idea where Jesus is. She adored him. She loved him and what's happened to him and where is he. And so she walks outside of the tomb and she sees this man out there, and she's weeping, and she's downcast, and it's Jesus, but she doesn't know it. And she's in engaging with this resurrected Jesus, this second Adam, the new Adam, the creator of the new humanity. 
And he begins talking with her, but she doesn't know that it's him. And then John chapter 20 throws this little line in there, and it's this atom bomb of a clue. Because the Bible loves telling stories with pictures. What Mary thinks about this person that is Jesus, but she doesn't know that it's Jesus. John chapter 20 says, and supposing him to be the gardener. The what? The first moment, the first encounter after the resurrection is that Mary thinks she's encountering a gardener. Not a shepherd, which he was. Not a carpenter, which he was. Not a preacher, which he was. Not a king, which he was. He is mistaken for a gardener. Now, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if he was pulling weeds or watering flowers or smelling flowers. I have no idea. But Mary thought him to be a gardener, and John thought it important for us to know that the first thing that anybody thinks about a resurrected Jesus is that he was a gardener. Why would a resurrected Jesus do that? It's this little clue in the biblical narrative that Jesus, the better Adam, has come. Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the better gardener, has come to launch a new humanity. Adam was tasked with being a priest in the garden, and he failed, and he was cast out. But Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the better gardener, was cast out so that we might be brought in, and he came to plant a new garden. He came to launch a new humanity. On the cross, Jesus was cast out from his Father's presence that he might invite us back in. On the cross, Jesus was cast out of God's presence so that we would never be. Jesus was cast out so that those of us who have been cast out could be brought back into this kind of relationship with our Creator. A relationship with the Creator. A relationship with the gardener where you could actually be with Him and be naked and feel no shame. See, we may have rejected God's presence, but God has not rejected us. Your Creator never stopped longing to be with you in the Garden of Delight. Jesus, the better Adam, Jesus, the better gardener, has come to invite us back into the intimacy of His presence. The intimacy, Him inviting us back into the Garden of Delight, Him inviting us back into the presence of the Lord, which is what He did when He resurrected. He said, hey, I'm bringing you back I'm bringing you back in. Those who are far off, I'm calling back in. That intimacy where, where we get the Father's face again, that intimacy is meant to cover our shame. That intimacy is meant to be a massively better replacement for our fig leaves. It takes the downcast and Jesus becomes the great lifter of our head. It's the intimacy that brings us back in. See, shame turns our faces away. Shame turns our faces downcast and says, you don't deserve to be loved and you'll never be loved. And Jesus comes and lifts our heads and holds our cheeks and says, I'm here with you. Says, what sh- the story that shame is telling you is not the most true story. This is the invitation that takes our contempt and trades it for delight. The gospel of Jesus writes a better story than shame does. According to Psalm chapter 34, that those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces are never covered in shame. It's almost hard to believe that that is actually that true. That it may be too hard to understand, but it's not too good to be true, according to Jess Ray. That it is not too good to be true that 
no matter what your memory brain is telling you, no matter what shame is pulling from the memory bank to convince you that you deserve to be covered in shame, that those who look to the Lord, according to Psalm 34, are radiant and they're never covered in shame. And now, as those who have been brought back in, as those who are part of the new humanity that Jesus is launching and has launched, the new gardener, the better Adam, the second Adam, Jesus has launched this movement as those that, have, that are being brought back in, and now we, as the church, we cultivate and keep this special presence with the Lord. We cultivate and keep this access, and we invite others into that too. Just like priests, we experience the garden of God's delight. We experience being naked and having no shame. We experience being radiant and our faces never being covered with shame. And like priests, we invite others into that. Who do we invite in? We invite others who have no idea about that. We invite others who are so downcast and so downtrodden, they have no idea that this garden of delight is even possible. We invite others who know about it but are way too afraid of it. Because it almost sounds too good to be true. We invite others in who have maybe experienced it but have been really wounded by other gardeners. We invite others in and we tell them the story that covers their shame. We invite others in and we tell them about this great gardener who had the intention for humanity to experience his special presence and invite others into that. We invite others who just like us are covered in shame and we bring them back to the garden of God's delight. So church, if you're in Christ, you're a priest and a gardener to his world. And that in every season, pandemic or not, may we be a people who are enjoying God as he enjoys us. And church, in every season, may we be those who are priests to the world, who invite others into that story. Let's pray. Jesus, this story uh, would be too good to be true if you hadn't written it. But your word tells us a better story than our shame tells us. Your word tells us the story that you intended for us to live. That now, even gathered with a few dozen saints in the room and gathered in Midtown home churches all across the city are people who are longing to not be alone or people who are longing to know that this story is more true than the story they've told themselves. We need it, Jesus. We need you. We need the blood of your new covenant. We need the living Jesus, the better gardener, to lift our heads and to cover our shame. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.